Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dwayne, one of the pastors here at the district. Uh, it's good to see you this morning and just want to say thank you for last week for hanging in there. I think I went for an hour and five minutes, um, but I just kind of chalk that up to not doing this for about seven weeks. Um, so I'm not really apologizing for it, but just saying thank you for hanging in there. Uh, hopefully today will uh, we'll not go that long. Um, but eager to get into God's Word and just open it up and see what He has for us today in the midst of everything that's going on. And so this is our um, last of two standalone sermons before next week we're going to be diving into the book of Colossians and just walking through Colossians. And as we've prayed through that study and, and the reason why we're choosing that book is because the context of the church in Colossae was um, kind of this idea of, of syncretism. There, there were hundreds if not thousands of worldviews coming into a city and kind of shifting and changing up the makeup of what they believed in that city to be true and to be right and to be moral and, and how they would ultimately live out their lives on a day in and day out basis. And so what the Apostle Paul did was wrote a letter to the church in Colossae in order to provide for them a foundation for how they are to anchor themselves in a society and culture of relativism. Whatever you feel is right, and whatever you think is good, and whatever you think should be moral is how you should live your life. And so instead of that kind of being what defined for them their culture, he's providing for them a foundation in the preeminence of Christ and how Christ is the foundation, how Christ not only created them, but sustains them and provides for them everything that they need, how he also is um, the way. And so not only is he the way for us to get to heaven, but he is also the way in which we are to live out our lives on a day in and day out basis. And so Christ is preeminent. So you have to have that foundation to where Christ is literally the standard by which we measure anything and everything. And therefore, that is what ultimately dictates how our culture should function and relate with one another and encourage one another and build one another up into Christ rather than what we think should be our moral standard. And so we want to walk through that again because uh, our culture is so just shifting uh, right now in so many areas. Um, and I'm not going to get into that because, again, we're going to be hitting that very, very hard throughout the, the study of Colossians. So I'm excited to jump into that. But that's where we're going to be going over the next um, several months until we get to Advent in December. Uh, today, what I want to look at is, is I was really asking the question this week. Um, one, the first question was, well, what do I preach on? I actually don't like standalone sermons because it's just so subjective. It's just so, I like being anchored to the Word of God verse by verse because that tells me what to preach rather than this where it's like, man, how am I feeling today? All right, let's go with that. Um, so I was kind of asking that question, what should I preach this week? And, and even asking some other people, hey, what would you like me to preach on this week? And, and where we ultimately ended up landing was not providing a sermon that's going to bring you comfort in the midst of everything that's going on around us, but rather providing you a sermon that's going to bring comfort to those around you based on how you react to what's going on with everything right now. 
And what I ultimately mean by that is the way I titled this sermon, and I usually don't actually title sermons, but love your enemies more than yourself. Love your enemies more than yourself. You've heard the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. And that one's a little bit easier because we can kind of define what our neighbor is. And so we'll refer to our neighbors as the people who are now sitting six feet away from us in this room. We'll define neighbors as the person who's literally right next to us where we live. Uh, we'll define neighbors as co-workers. But what we tend to do in those environments is we will gravitate towards neighbors who are most like us, who agree most with us, uh, who have a worldview that is defined similar to our worldview, and then we'll choose to do life with them. We'll choose to engage with them. We'll choose to spend our time with them because they're the least argumentative. They're the least hostile. They're the least um, ones that are going to uh, debate us regarding any type of situation or circumstance that we're going through. And so what I wanted to do today was look at a couple of scriptures that are not only going to encourage you to engage those who, who are very different than you or believe different than you, think different than you do, but also how we are to go about engaging them in such a way that it's actually countercultural to everything that we're being told right now on how to engage with someone when we disagree with them. And so that's what I want to look at. So if you've got your Bibles... Either open them up or turn them on to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 27 through 36. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. And before we read this, I would love to pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your written word that you have provided to us, that you've inspired through authors to, to deliver to us in order for us to be made more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that as we open up your word right now and as we read your word, we know that your son, Jesus, has sent the Holy Spirit to guide us in understanding the truth, to inspire our hearts and our minds, and to actually provide for us not only the understanding, but the strength to apply this word to our daily lives. So that as we engage with those around us, whether they are in the church or not in the church, whether they're in the family of the God or not in the family of God, who, whoever they might be, that they would see a countercultural way of living that is loving and full of truth. So, Father, I pray for that as we walk through this and as we read these scriptures and study them, that you would inspire us and that you would change us and that you would transform us more and more to be like Jesus. For it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 27. I'm just going to read through the whole thing here. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So the first thing that we see in this passage, verse 27, is I say to you who hear. And I think that's important for us to start off with. Because again, in a culture right now that is so polarized on viewpoint. Our natural posture, and I'm not saying from like a Christian natural posture, I'm just saying from a humanitarian, like just from a, from a human perspective, our natural posture is to get our view heard, to get our voice out there, to get our point across so that they know what we know. Like that's natural for us. And so what he's starting off with here is, but I'm saying to you who hear, because what we know in this culture is for those of them who are not hearing, it's because they think they already know. They think they already understand. They think they already have everything that they need in order to live the life the way that they want to live their life. And so they are not going to hear anything new. They're not going to hear anything that goes countercultural to what they already believe and agree with. And so he has to start off with this question. But I say to you who hear. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to contemplate that your way of living or your way of pursuing or your way of speaking and engaging those around you might be wrong? Are you willing to hear? And if so, if so, if you're willing to hear, then I want you to live out these ramifications of how God ultimately has engaged with us. Because that's all he's doing here is he's unpacking practical examples of a theological view of God engaging humanity. Because as we know in Romans 5, while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, he sent his son Jesus to us. And so this is just practically showing some examples of what God has done for humanity. How he has engaged us, just as it says at the end of this, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And what we know regarding that is that God not only pursues but engages everyone in all of the world, whether they are believers or non-believers. So this is telling us that we should not create as Christians a subculture of Christianity that we are the only ones that we are going to engage with, do life with, um, interact with, agree with, that those are the only ones that we're going to literally invest and spend our time with. He's breaking down those barriers to show us that if that were the case, then Christ would have never left heaven and entered into the world. He would have never left the culture um, and, 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 and influ or, or the culture of angels to enter into the culture of sinners. He would have never have done that. But that's exactly what he did in order to come to love his enemies and to do good to those who hate him. 
to bless those who cursed him, to pray for those who abused him. I mean, you can think through. I, I literally, I picture the cross and I'm seeing Jesus nail every single one of those, one after another. I mean, what was he doing? He's literally praying for those who are abusing him on the cross. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Did Jesus retaliate when they were abusing him and torturing him? No. So he's providing for us this way in which we are to engage the world in such a way that we are not necessarily of it. It reveals something of the way that God is. For we know in Matthew 5, 45, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We know in Psalm 103, verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, not, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He's pursuing us regardless of us, despite us. And therefore, we see in Ephesians 4.32, the, the command be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We're to engage others as he has engaged us, which was at our worst. Like we, we forget that a lot of times. We forget that when you met Jesus, it was at your worst it wasn't because you went on some type of 10-step uh, 10, you know, 10 program on how to become a better person in order for God to then see you as clean and then allow you into the family. Like That's not what he did. It wasn't because you learned all the Christian needs and you know when to raise your hands or when not to raise your hands or how to pray like others pray. It's not because of all of those things. He met you at your worst when you knew nothing about him and the gospel was preached and proclaimed to you, whether through someone telling you or you hearing it in a sermon or through a song or whatever it looked like, the gospel was preached and proclaimed to you. And in that moment, at your worst, you saw in an understanding of your, your, your soul and your spirit and your mind and your heart, you saw Jesus for who he is and you saw yourself for who you are. Now, I am a sinner and I am in desperate need of a Savior. I'm in desperate need of someone to forgive me for all the things that I've done that I cannot forgive myself of. And that no one else can forgive me of. My parents can't forgive me of this. My spouse can't forgive me of this. My children won't forgive me of this. My friends won't forgive me of this. No one has the power to get rid of all the filth that I have. But yet Jesus pursued me in that place, found me there, and saved me by His good news by his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's what he did. And he's providing that for us. He pursued us in that place. And therefore, by nature then, as Christians, little Christ, we are to not be um, countercultural to Jesus where, okay, let me just bring in these 12 guys, and I'm just going to hang out with these 12 guys for three years, and, and that's literally all I'm going to do. Is that all he did? No. There's a great, uh, great book out there, Friend with Sinners, that literally looks at all of the passages of Scripture where Jesus was accused of being with sinners. He was accused of eating too much as a glutton. He was accused of drinking too much as a drunkard. 
He was accused of being with prostitutes. He was accused of being with uh, tax collectors. He was just accused of, of literally being guilty by association with those whom he was hanging out with. But why was he hanging out with them? Because as he says himself, I've come not to uh, seek those who are righteous, but I've come to seek those who are lost. I've come to save those who are lost. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. So I've come for the sick. And the reason why I'm giving quotations for those is the Pharisees in that day believed that they were righteous because of their works. They believed that they were healthy because of their worldview. They believed that they were the ones who earned God's favor. And yet Jesus looked at them and saying, well, if you think you're good, then I'm going to go over here. And I'm going to go and pursue and engage with those who are not. Now, that doesn't mean that he's never shared the gospel with the Pharisees. He did. He preached and proclaimed to them the good news as well. Were they willing to hear? Don't know. Some were, some weren't. But what we do know is time after time again, he pursued those that were marginalized. He pursued those who, were, who we would look at today and be like, man, if, if I invited them over to my house... It's not going to be a good example for my children. Or if I were to go and have coffee with them in public, someone might send me an email because, did you see who Dwayne was sitting down with? We have to be willing to break down our sub-Christian culture to begin viewing the way Jesus lived among people. Not only lived with them, like moved in with some of them. Like, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house and I'm going to stay for a while. Like, we've got to be willing to engage so deep into these lives that people are wondering, and did they leave the faith? I mean, really? Like, are we willing to engage that much into the lost and marginalized that people would look at us and maybe think, are, are they still Christian anymore? I just wonder how concerned we are about whether people think we're Christian versus whether we're Christian. Whether we're Christian. God was not concerned about what people viewed Jesus. He was concerned about getting Jesus' news out. And that news was good. Second reason is the hearts of Christians are satisfied with God and are not driven by the craving for revenge or self-exaltation, or money, or earthly security. You see, God in Christ has become our all-satisfying treasure. And so we don't treat our adversaries, we don't treat sinners out of our own sense of need and insecurity, but out of our own fullness with the satisfying glory of God. Like, if we are fully satisfied in Him and Him alone, then yes, someone can rob us and we're fine. We're okay. Because you can't take from me what I already possess that is all satisfying. Like when I say all satisfying, that means like Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't long for anything else. I don't long for the, the car that got robbed or I don't long for the clothes that got stripped off my back. I don't long for the money that was stolen from me. I don't long for those things because I have all that I need in Jesus. And so you can't rob me of anything. 
You can't steal from me anything that is all satisfying for me. And so therefore, it's allowing them to be able to live this countercultural life that even if you beat me physically, it doesn't affect me. Because I know that again, in Jesus, I have all that I need. And not only that, but this momentary earthly body that even when I sleep, it beats me and abuses me. Like it's just, it's just going downhill. It's not going to end well for this earthly body that I have. There will be a day that I will receive a glorified body that God has promised to me because of Jesus Christ as him being the first fruit. And him entering into his state of glory when he resurrected, he's also going to provide that for every Christian and every believer of his. And therefore, do what you want with this body. I know what I have coming for me. And therefore, I'm satisfied because my father is providing. I'm good to go. It reminds me of what the Hebrew author says in Hebrews 10.34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So I love that. Like it, we joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than your property. You had a better possession than your things. And not only was your possession a person, but it's an abiding one. It's one that you're relating to. It's one that you're communicating to. It's one that you're growing in. It's one that's restoring you and refreshing you on a daily basis, renewing your mind, providing all that you need emotionally, providing all that you need physically, providing all that you need spiritually, providing all of those things. And therefore, because that can't get robbed from you, you joyfully accept if people take what is yours. You see, what takes away the compulsion of revenge is our deep confidence that this world is not our home and that God is our utterly sure and all-satisfying reward. We know that we have a better possession. So on both these reasons for loving our enemy, we see the main thing. God is shown to be who he really is, a merciful God, one who pursues enemies rather than, rather than engaging revenge on them. And we also know that we are satisfied in him and him alone. Full satisfaction in him. The power to be merciful is that we have been satisfied with God's mercy toward us. And we're satisfied with his mercy towards us. That frees us to be merciful to those around us. And this practice, this, this, this theology, is countercultural to our current societal norms, is it not? Like, when was the last time you were able to disagree with someone and it not get awkward, argumentative, or maybe even hostile? I mean, think about it. Like, when was the last time that you were able to sit down with someone and have a disagreement? And they'd be like, man, I love you. Let's do this again next Tuesday. Like, we just, they unfriend you, block you. I mean, it's just, you're done with. Like, it's, we cannot figure out how to relate because we disagree with one another. That's our cultural, societal norm right now. And if you don't have the ability to unfriend or block someone, then Facebook's going to do it for you. They'll just start silencing you and however they want because you disagree with a policy. We don't know how to disagree anymore. 
That's why I believe it's necessary for the church to respond in a way that is countercultural so that we can show that there's a way to disagree that is loving, that is merciful. And so I've got just four little kind of practical things that I think are good for us on how to be able to do this. One is countercultural sacrifice. At a time when self-idolatry is just being exposed in ugly ways, the church has an opportunity to model love that places the interest of others above self. Countercultural sacrifice. How can I sacrifice my interests in order to consider the interests of others? And one of the best ways to do that is when you're in a debate, when you're in an argument, when you're seeing a headline, whatever it is, usually whatever the headline is, is not the issue. There's a deeper rooted issue that we should consider. Why is this headline out there? Why is this person screaming this, yelling this? Why are they um, um, crying out for this? There's a much deeper embedded issue that that is what we should pursue and consider so that we're considering the interest of others rather than us trying to respond to the headline based on our own comfort level or our own interests. And then we actually never meet where we should meet. Take the woman at the well, for example, who had five husbands. She's sleeping around as a prostitute. That would be the headline. But there was a deeper-rooted issue there. Jesus knew how to get to the deeper-rooted issue. And he went to the idea of water. You're thirsting for something that will never satisfy. Are we willing to get to the water issues rather than looking at the deeper or, or looking at the surface-level sin that is being committed. I think we also need countercultural humility. Have you noticed how remarkably confident so many of us are in our views right now? I mean, everyone, like polarized, both sides of it are experts on COVID. They're experts on social injustices. They're experts on um, Jumanji, they're experts on literally anything and everything, and there's no humility. There's no let me hear your side. Let me listen. Give me the resources that have led you to your conclusion. I would love to read those as well. Would you be willing to read my resources that have led me to my conclusion? And then can we get all of those resources out on the table and discuss them and see if there's something there for us to both consider that is true? When was the last time that happened? I mean, it's absolutely not happening right now in a bipartisan political just frenzy. But it's also not happening even in something sim like simple to wear masks or not to wear masks. Because we just get so like, how dare you take my freedom? And then on the other side, how dare you kill someone by not wearing a mask? Like we're just so um, um, one side or the other but that we're not willing to just have a conversation. 
Just a conversation to consider the side of the others. And maybe even lay down your interest if you never actually get to the other agreement. I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice. I'm, I might not agree to wear a mask, but you know what? I'm going to wear a mask for your sake. Are we willing to just establish some humility that's countercultural to everything going on right now? And then I think we need countercultural patience. Patience is one of the rarest virtues in today's insta-everything world. And yet patience has rarely been more needed as many of us are just antsy right now. We're just antsy. We can't wait for things to get back to normalcy when there's actually never really been a normalcy. Just like I said earlier, it, the funny thing is every commercial starts off with in these uncertain times, as if times were certain. Like, nothing's ever been certain. That's what I love about Ecclesiastes. It's like there's a season for everything. There's a time to mourn and a time to laugh. And guess what? You don't know when those seasons come and go. You just don't know what tomorrow will hold. It's not certain. It's not guaranteed. Nothing's guaranteed. And so because of that, we need patience more than ever. But yet right now, everything's trying to run 100 miles an hour in order to get our agendas into play so that everything functions. But yet we need patience to be able to figure this out. We need patience on gatherings. I mean, like this, again, I'm, I love that we're in here, yet we're full today. Like if we add f three or four more families in here, we got to start figuring out because social distancing then starts to break down a little bit. But that's also us considering the interest of others. How can we work this out? We need patience. We need patience on your end. Our culture needs patience. And I promise you, they are not going to learn patience if they're not seeing the patience of Christ being displayed in His children, His believers, the church. Let's model patience. And then the last one is countercultural nuance. We live in an unnuanced age. And what I mean by that is, is we don't know how to have a both and perspective. We don't. We don't know how to make a post where it's, you know what? The Republicans are right on this. And the Democrats are right on this. We just don't know how to do that as a society. We don't know how to have two people with opposing views come together around a nuanced viewpoint and be able to say, you know what, we disagree on these things, but we agree on these things. Rather, what we do is we change the language in order to say, this is the right way, the other person's an idiot, this is the right way, that other person's an idiot, and you just got to choose one and go. And so we're creating all of these wars around just nuancing language. I mean, literally, if I just throw out the term mask, how many different definitions are out there based on that one word right now? Because we don't know how to nuance anymore. We don't know how to both and. 
And the church right now needs to be able to, to provide nuance rather than this all-caps hysteria that we are, we are engaging in. That is try- I mean, like, when was the last time your viewpoint on any subject was changed because someone yelled at you? It's not. I mean, like, if I'm scrolling Facebook and I see someone post and it's in all caps, I'm not even reading. I'm just moving on. I don't have time for that. But if someone were to start out, hey, food for thought, that kind of pulls me in a little bit. I want to consider this. I want to think about this. I want to pray about this. I want to go to Scripture and see what God's Word has to say regarding this topic. And then I want to start to form an opinion rather than jumping to my natural opinion that might be wrong. Like Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm going to be right on every opinion that's brought to me. I need to think through it. I need to process it. I need to study. I need to research. And then be able to form a thought. It means we can be skeptical of some aspects of what's going on in our country without resorting to outrageous conspiracy theories. We can be cautious while at the same time being creative in how we are being reverent and showing honor for those around us. This isn't just blindly saying, okay, truth is relative, so let's just kind of nuance it and figure out how we can make everything sound good. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, are we willing to be able to listen and hear and research and study and actually form biblically grounded views regarding the situations that are going on, the circumstances that are around us? the people that are next to us. Of course, there are some things Christians should not be nuanced about. And one of those is our rugged commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that Scripture commands. Now, we're going to hold firm. But in the way in which we hold firm is, I hope, what you're hearing me today. We are to not hold firm like the Crusades in the Middle Ages. We are to not hold firm like Peter when Jesus was being arrested. Let me pull my sword and slice off your ear. Now you really can't hear me. I mean, like, that's, think about that. Are we willing to be countercultural? Are we willing to be humble? Are we willing to be patient? And are we willing to engage rather than retreat into subculture Christianity? Are we willing to engage and love our enemies well? And honestly, I think that's the first thing that we need to do is begin to shift that language. Yes, the Bible uses love your enemies, but I think a lot of times we create our own enemies. And I think we need to change that language again to kind of getting it back more towards neighbors but defining neighbors as not everyone who agrees with you, that looks like you, that thinks the way that you think. So let's engage those who are different than us. Let's love those who are different than us. And let's be the church in a time right now where good news is absolutely necessary and needed. Let's provide that good news. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much that you have given us a framework and structure for how it is that we are to go about engaging and relating to those around us. Father, you have not saved us to be a family that then only um, loves one another and, and encourages one another and edifies one another, but you have created a family that is based on the idea of adoption. You've adopted this family into yours. And therefore, we are to go and pursue those who are not in the family to adopt into. And may we think about that language. Would we adopt our neighbors next to us? Would we adopt our co-workers? Would we pursue them to love them as one of our own? And would we just be humble and patient knowing that it's not up to us to get them to agree. It's not up to us to get them to, to know you or understand you. God, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You're just allowing us to play a part in the game. And so as we engage in conversations, and we're able to start seeing the Holy Spirit do some work. And we're able to see people who have no hope holding on to ideologies that are not satisfying for them. And as they begin to see this good news in, in Jesus Christ and what the fact that He's the way, the truth, and the life, as they see Him and they come to know Him and their sins are forgiven, man, we just get to, we just get to witness that and have our joy overflow. Man, the worship, the worship that comes seeing a lost person come to know you. Nothing greater, nothing greater. God, lead us in that. Jesus, make us more like you. Help us to see the woman at the well. Help us to see Zacchaeus standing up in the tree. Help us to see the lame beggars sitting at the gates. Help us to see the Pharisees who grumble against us. Help us to see them so that we can provide your good news. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. We finish each of our services out with communion. And I know that we have more people in this room right now than we do cups on the ground because we ran out. So what I'm first going to do is if you're on our leadership team and you have a cup underneath you, go ahead and pass that around to someone else. Um, and if we run out, again, patience. Thank you for um, allowing some patience for us. We will have more next week. But we come to this time of communion. And we just remember, I mean, this is Jesus. This is Jesus doing exactly what we talked about today. This is him pursuing enemies. This is him pursuing those who are sinners. And not just looking at the sinners and saying, figure it out. This is him coming to them and saying, you know what? This is what you deserve. 
It's the way God set it up. This is, this is what you deserve. You deserve punishment. You deserve death. But because I'm considering your interests, I'm going to take your death and your penalty, your judgment. I'm going to take it and I'm going to place it on myself so that that can be removed from you. And then I'm going to give you my interest. I'm going to give you my righteousness and my holiness. Martin Luther calls that the great exchange. This is what he did, and this is what we celebrate through communion, is the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood in order for us to be forgiven of our sins and brought into the family of God and then granted righteousness and holiness that we get to grow in on a daily basis in our sanctification. And it's through that that ultimately provides for us the strength that we need to live out what we just talked about today. So this is a time for us to thank Jesus for his sacrifice, countercultural sacrifice. It's exactly what he did, and that's what we get to live out, and that's what we get to worship today. So as we partake of communion, as you eat that little wafer, and as you drink this juice, we're remembering his body broken and his blood shed. So let's go ahead and worship him now as we partake together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at